Well, before I begin this, uh, there's been speculation about <clears throat> what will Pastor John be doing now? And despite, uh, despite rumors about uh, my future appearances in Star Wars films, <laughs> that may not be the case, depending on how negotiations go. Um, I will be doing, however, uh, the following. Here's a, here's a glimpse. I will be sitting behind the desk at MSNBC talking to various politicians. Poor guy, John Heilman, has the misfortune of looking like me and being on TV. I don't know what to, <laughs> what to say. Um, enough silliness. God's calling for me still awaits, and it likely won't be in journalism or appearing in films. We live in an interesting time. A sizable percentage of our population believes that our culture has become too secular, that we've essentially told God to pack up and leave. And of course, uh, folks who talk that way usually have very specific ways of measuring this secularism. For instance, when people say, Happy Holidays instead of Merry Christmas, it's a sure sign that we've kicked God out of the country. And, and what will become of us then? I mean, if we abandon God, then God will surely abandon us, right? I mean, there's, you've heard all kinds of talk like that. And are we more secular now? Is God not as present out there? Don't make room for God? And for those paying attention to organized religion in America, um, the, the narrative that I just talked about seems kind of confirmed, doesn't it? Churches are getting smaller. Millennials aren't exactly flocking to our doors etc. How do we hang on to what we once had in America? How do we hang on to our membership and, and find new members? There's fear lurking here and, and a prevailing sense of scarcity. As if the people of faith have circled the wagons, hanging on to a dwindling sense of God's presence in the world. And then we read Luke 10. As Jesus sends out 70 of his followers into the world to find people of peace and to declare that the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus says these memorable words, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful. It's significant enough just that there is a harvest. That means... Seeds have already been planted. They've taken root. There's a harvest out there, and it's plentiful. It says that God is the Lord of the harvest. That means this is God's crop, and it's out there in the world, this crop. Now, this description does not suggest the world is a godless place, does it? But a place where God is very much active and present where seeds are taking root and have taken root. Today we seem to think that the harvest is scarce in a world that, God, that has rejected God. Indeed, we may well think, well, in Jesus' time, God was more active in the world. You know, anytime you read Bible stories, it was always different then. People believed in God and they were more holy and all that. Um, God was more active in the world then. That's why the harvest was plentiful, but not now. Okay, pay close attention to what Luke tells us in his gospel. Luke tells us that in Jesus, God 
became permanently deeply invested and present in the world. God is all in. Even more so when you get to a part of the story not covered in Luke 10, where the Holy Spirit is given to the church and to the world. So now God is loose in the world in a new way, a deeper, more profound way. So, indeed, it is true today that the harvest is plentiful out there. Don't doubt it for a second. It's not scarce. What does harvest mean? Well, I think it means the possibility for God to do something new is very real. Every day, all the time, the possibilities for God to do a new thing. It means that in a world hungering and thirsting for God, which this world is, where brokenness awaits healing, God seeks to bring people together to give life. God is loose in the world, you see. It's God's world, after all, and God is at work in it. So the question then is not, well, how do we get more people to come here? Rather, the question is, what is God up to in the world? What is God calling us to do in the world as a part of God's work in the world? I mean, I'm living into this question for sure. Haven't answered it yet. I'm working on it. God's going to show me the way. Combining my experience that I've had here and others with my current passions, with what God is doing out there. See how it comes together. It's going to be fun. It is fun. Where, where God is present in the world, gathering folks around his promises, wherever that may be, that is where the church is, you see. It's people, not a building. I mean, sure, part of that world where God gathers the faithful is right here at 12235 Old Rockford Road. And God surely is at work here, no question about it. But if we limit our imaginations to this address, we have no future because God's address in this world is a whole lot bigger than 122 Old Rockford Road. God is inviting us to, to, to that global address, to dwell there, to look for him, to believe that the spiritual harvest is plentiful, not scarce. Can you believe that? Can you assume that? Jesus instructed his followers to go out and knock on doors and say, peace to this house. That worked in their culture. Doesn't so much today. Um, you know, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons notwithstanding. I mean, they certainly get some traction out of that, but um, that's usually not how Lutherans dwell in the world, is it? One last time to tell one of my favorite jokes. What happens when you cross a Jehovah's Witness with a Lutheran? Someone who knocks on your door and when you answer it, they just stand there and don't say anything. We're the strong, silent type, aren't we? <laughs> well, it's just not our way. Well, but what does it mean for you and me who are sent into the world to say peace to this house, peace to you, whoever those people may be, wherever you may be? What does that mean? 
We don't get to sit that out. We're sent, you see. How do we say peace to this house? How do you declare in your own way the peace and presence of God? Most of us have coworkers in our lives, neighbors, friends, family members, strangers. Peace to your house is an invitation to trust, to hope, to listen to someone else's story. No, to really listen to their story and to their questions and to share bits of your story, but not until you listened first. Find common cause, perhaps, in some way with that person. Dare to suggest that God is active with the world and invested with us. Sometimes when we say peace in our own way, that peace will be reciprocated and a relationship of some kind or an acquaintance will form. Sometimes not. No big deal. You move on. Let me share some uh, examples of what I think it looks like out there when this sort of thing happens. People going out and saying peace and finding Christian community in the oddest places. Let me share, uh, first of all, an experience uh, around interfaith dialogue and how God is loose in interfaith dialogue. 30 or 40 of our members, some of whom are, are here today, took part in this a few years ago. When we spent, uh, we spent the year learning about the faith journeys of folks from other religions. And while visiting the Hindu temple of Minnesota in Maple Grove, we were hosted that night with a wonderful Indian dinner, followed by conversation about the faith journey that they had been on, that Hindu community led by Dr. Shashikant Sane. In their own way, they were saying peace to this house, to our house, many times over. And we listened intently, believing that God had led us to open our hearts, our minds, and our ears to our neighbors. To, in effect, say to them, peace to your house. We learned, in listening to their story, about some vandals who, shortly after their church was built, uh, the building was was, uh, desecrated, it was vandalized, Uh, by two teenagers who also happened to be Christians of a more uh, uh, fearful and judgmental variety. They viewed the Hindu presence somehow as an affront to what they believed. Now, when they were caught, everyone expected um, the Hindu community to press charges, but that's not what happened. The Hindus said, we will drop the charges provided the boys commit to several meetings with us to get to know us and to try to reconcile this in a a healthier way. And that they did. And after they spent some time together, a few things happened. The boys became embarrassed by what they had done and deeply sorry for it. They came to realize that these folks from A different religious tradition were real people on a real spiritual quest just like them. And that they were compassionate. You see, the Hindu community forgave the boys, sort of adopting them as honorary members of the community. Game changer, right? After Dr. Sane told this story, I remember commenting to him, probably in a very clumsy way, something to the effect of, 
gee, that sounded like a Christian story. What with the forgiveness part and all, you know? And he said, he said to me, well, why do you think you have to be the only ones who value forgiveness and forgive other people? So do we. It's part of who we are. We try to practice it. Touche. It then dawned on me that God was clearly at work in a place such as this. Um, no, that doesn't mean that all religions are basically the same and it doesn't matter what you believe. I'm not saying that at all. It's more a statement, I think, about the size of our God who is not contained in the doctrinal boxes that we design. This God that we worship, who is loose in the world, spills out over the containers that we build time and time again. And while this may be threatening to some, and it clearly is, I think it's kind of exciting. These experiences of listening and visiting two different kinds of temples, a mosque, a synagogue, a Mormon stake, only helped us to see that these folks are fellow spiritual sojourners whose stories can enrich us and did, and vice versa. The harvest is plentiful, which means there are stories waiting to be shared that celebrate a common quest. Differences, too, that's part of sharing stories. The harvest is plentiful. God is out there and at work. Here's another way that God works in the world. Uh, not to surprise anyone, justice and advocacy. If you've seen the movie Spotlight, or if you've merely kept up on current events, you already know what happened in the Catholic Church in, in Boston a few years back. They were guilty of uh, perpetuating a culture of cover-up in the clergy abuse scandal there, and of course, I think they wrestle with that to this day. This was a culture where, where sin had become an institutional, community-wide effort. And yet the God of justice and advocacy, who is at work in the world, calling people to join him there in the world, brought together some unlikely individuals, brought together several dozen broken and disillusioned believers who, yes, were victims and felt utterly silenced, brought them together with an investigative team on the Boston Globe of mostly lapsed Christians who were also disillusioned to form a partnership. A partnership that would hold the church and the community accountable for its sins. A partnership that would break the silence. A partnership that was of God. Such partnerships are forming everywhere, including some of our members who have partnered with St. Joe's Catholic Church and with Home Free, the women's shelter down the street. And uh, initially just women, recently some of uh, Mount Olivet's men have become more uh, actively involved in this partnership as well, a partnership of God's work in the world. The harvest is plentiful, which means readiness for healing, possibility for hope. It means gifts and passions waiting to come together for a reason. It means stories told to each other and connections made. It means 
God is there. God is here. What other opportunities are out there for justice and advocacy? I have one more example from our midst. One of our members is Mark Brotland. Some of you may know Mark, who coached his sons a few years ago in traveling uh, basketball uh, league. And if you're familiar with traveling sports at the fifth through eighth grade level, uh, tournaments are, are frequent and typically take up both Saturday and Sunday. It's kind of an all-consuming thing. How many people have had exposure to traveling leagues? Yeah, it's kind of a big deal. Um, and certainly, mostly a very good, good thing. I, I don't mean to call that into question. Neither does Mark, by the way. But Mark observed that Sunday used to be a family and a church day. Oh, this sounds so retro and old-fashioned, doesn't it? Doesn't it? He remembered, you know, as a kid, he'd always go to his grandparents on, on Sundays. And he, he realized that with his own sons, they never do that on Sundays, visit grandparents or spend time together as a family or go to church. And so, for all the good things that happen as a result of traveling basketball, there were some boundaries that have been sort of collapsed that were not necessarily a good thing. So he and some other parents began a conversation that eventually impacted the scheduling of the tournaments, at least for the uh, uh, several years that they were a part of that. And so a number of tournaments planned for that year happened only on Saturday, not Sunday. There was a common cause to be found around the idea that family and faith matter and that we need boundaries on things. There was a harvest waiting for laborers. I had a seminary professor whose words have stuck with me. He said the problem with any institution, you know, whether whether it's a a, a nonprofit, a public institution, business, doesn't matter, any institution, is that the longer it exists, the more that it tends to exist for the sake of perpetuating itself. That's kind of the life of an institution. And that's trouble. The institution and the people in it forget they were originally a movement with a mission, but they've changed their mentality. We saw it clearly in the Catholic Church in Boston at that particular chapter and beyond, of course, but it's true for institutions everywhere. Churches like this one can be tempted in the same way. It can lead churches like this one to say, again, how do we maintain our church when the question is really, why, why are we here in the first place? Why were we here in the first place? Oh yeah, God formed this congregation and sent us into the community to be a part of God's mission some 140 years ago and ever since. So what does that mission look like today? How do we rediscover it? We're not here to maintain ourselves. We are here for the sake of the world, to be about what God is doing in the world. Now, this address, 122.35, is part of the world too, and God is most certainly at work right here because we are a people that needs to be reminded of who we are. We are gathered around the promises and the presence of God, and then we are sent out because God is out there, not just here. The harvest is plentiful on all of it, 
What does the church look like now, in the months and years ahead? Blessings as you work that out. Amen.